0: Hello, you're listening to Novara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am James Butler. We're back, and I hope you've had a reasonably serene break. This year marks 10 years that I, or Aaron, have been welcoming you to the show just like that. And I think one should always take the opportunity to celebrate anniversaries, however arbitrary. And January, after all, is named after the two-faced Roman god who looks back into the old year and forward into the new. So over the break, along with my brilliant producer, Chow Ravens, I've been rummaging deep in the Navarra archives, peering back over the course of the past decade or, well, what remains of it on tape anyway. You're going to hear some of the bits and pieces I've pulled out today. But first, just to set the scene, I should say a word about how Navarra started the FM suffix to denote this show, only came a bit later. We owe our existence basically to Resonance FM's far-sighted then station manager, Richard Morgan, who in 2011 saw that there was something going on in the confluence of protests against austerity, student occupations, and a left which seemed to be waking up after a very long post-Iraq dormancy. Aaron and I, meanwhile, had met during the student movement. We'd argued a lot and agreed on a lot, and he eventually wrote me in to join him. We were both convinced that there was space for something intelligent, heterodox, which tried to bring ideas and action together and which could, in its own small way, try to smash open a suffocatingly right-wing public sphere. The project, of course, has grown a lot since then. Articles and, of course, video as well and many others have joined us. Uh, but that's where it started. The journey, the journey certainly hasn't been predictable, Uh, Lots of things we thought were true turned out not to be as true as we suspected and lots of things we were certain of and that the world in general said were impossible have indeed come to pass. Not everyone will remember what it felt like to come out of the torpor of the noughties. Here's the very much missed Mark Fisher on a very early Navarra FM talking about exactly what it meant to see suddenly a movement alive again.
1: It was literally unbelievable. All of your expectations um, about what life could be, about what politics could be, it's exactly those expectations, in fact, uh, that are the substance of capitalist realism had fallen apart. And, you know, we just couldn't believe um, what what we were seeing. I think I compared it on my blog to those moments of exhilaration when you first recover from depression, which is not a metaphor, I think, actually. That's, That's how things were. Depression is a state of extremely lowered expectations. Uh, and kind of psychic inertia, uh, where you don't expect anything to to, to ever happen again. It's not, it's not only that's worse than that. It's that you think, not only will anything, nothing ever happen again, it's that nothing ever really happened anyway, did it? You know, and that, I think this was back to this Jamesonian sense of um, the the end of history or of um, this kind of last man perspective on things, which is part of this uh, sort of broader postmodern phenomenology. It's not only that nothing will ever happen again. It's that, well, you know, everything went wrong, didn't it, really? it all ended up with Krispy Kreme doughnuts and you know shopping malls over the whole cosmos. And that's how it was always going to be, isn't it? And that's how everything will, will, will be forever. Um, but, you know, I, so I guess what I'm saying is that um, capitalist realism is totally flat with kind of psychic depression, I think. It's no accident that, you know, depression, particularly amongst young people, has um, been on the rise during the, um, the period of capitalist realism. I think you're, the, the phrase that you had there, something is happening. That was in itself kind of uh, produced an ex- exhilaration of shock or a shock of exhilaration. I think. Mm. I think we've passed a stage of like a political inertia. Actually, uh, it's that the idea that politics could even matter in any way, you know, the not, height, not just that it could yeah.
2: matter, but also that it could even be sincere. I mean, the yeah, forms of protest right. were seen as kind of like either glib or or cliche. But the idea that people who weren't were apolitical coming onto the streets yeah. and genuinely caring about something—that so, I mean—that's almost the entire country was sort of
1: anathema they were like what the hell is going on yeah and we can see that the attempts to manage that by the um by you know the capitalist realists by cameron etc uh, was uh to, precisely to have this kind of appeal to time temporality actually yes people used to do this sort of thing and it's kind of quaint and uh that, that, that people do it now and uh but you know they'll learn they'll learn about that this this doesn't get you anywhere and it doesn't really work as, as we can see um those protests, much as Cameron and his Ilk would like to, the story they'd like to tell, um, those protests weren't some brief flurry that will um, presage the sort of return to normality. That mm. uh, um, everything is cracking. Mm-hmm. Everything is cracking in that re system.
0: Lots of those early shows are attempts to grapple with exactly what the dimensions of the post-2008 financial crisis are. How far did it extend? Was it right to talk about a secular crisis, the idea, effectively, that the crisis is systemic and only likely, therefore, to spiral farther? Here's the also deeply missed David Graeber with a really neat encapsulation of one reading of the roots of the present
3: crisis. One thing I think one can say is I rather like the Midnight Notes um, analysis of the sort of two cycles of post-war capitalism. What they argue is that after the World War, there was this general agreement, a sort of tacit deal was offered to the elements of the white male proletariat in Mm -hmm. North Atlantic countries, basically saying, all right, if you stop flirting with socialism, we will guarantee, you know, a sort of Keynesian deal, as it's sometimes called. Increases of productivity will be met by increases of wages, Um, there will be various social guarantees, education, health care, so forth. And well, you could argue that almost all social struggles from 1945 to, say, 1975, were more and more people wanting it on the deal. If political rights mean certain forms of economic security and economic rights, then other people are saying, well, what about me? You know, minorities, the civil rights mm-hmm. movement, people who'd been left out of the deal, um, various social sectors in the global south. Um, women finally in the feminist movement. Now at a certain point, the whole thing breaks. So there's a crisis of inclusion because, you know, capitalism can't actually give a good deal to um even the majority of wage earners. And, um, you know, the thing cracks, you get like a series of crises, you get the oil crunch, you get the financial crisis, you get these visions of ecological catastrophe, all of which sort of happened simultaneously in the 70s. And they come out with a new dispensation. They say, all right, no, wages will no longer be linked to productivity. Wages have remained flat ever since, although productivity increases. But also, you know, you can all have political rights because political rights no longer have any implications for for economic security. Instead, all problems will be solved by credit. So suddenly you have this outpouring of mortgages, Thatcher's idea that everybody has to own their Mm -hmm. house. You have 401ks, you have microcredits going to save the third world. And of course, it's absurd because the basic idea seems to be investing in these credit instruments is essentially speculating on future profits. So the idea is everyone is supposed to own a piece of their own future exploitation. It can't hold up. Uh, and and of course, you have the same thing, this crisis of inclusion. So it's almost almost predictable that it's the subprime mortgages. They're sort of extending the system to people that they don't realize could never really be included in the game. And in fact, doing it in such a way as to rip them off, um, you know, leads to the crunch. And the crunch comes in exactly the same form. First, you have the oil shock, then you have the Financial shock, or more or less simultaneously. You have visions of ecological c- catastrophe. I mean, it doesn't mean they're not real. <laughs> but, um, and it's not clear how they're going to dig their way out this time.
0: Of course, there were, in the words of a former prime minister, Events, dear boy, events. And we tried to think about them directly to figure out what they actually meant rather than finding an awkwardly fitting left cliché to shove them into. So not long after the show came into existence, we were faced with the largest riots England had experienced in many, many years. But why did they take the form that they did? Could we even think of them as political? Political? Act by sort of marching on the streets or carrying placards or shouting slogans is entirely different um, in species uh, to the act of looting uh, an electronic goods store uh, and acquiring for yourself uh, sort of symbols of status. To, to make that division is, 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 I think, to misunderstand what's going on here and to misunderstand in a way that will you know, simply f-
4: uh, fan the flames of the situation. There is a politics that underscores it absolutely. Hmm. Um, as you know, it may not be a politics that many of us like. Like, and, yeah. and it and, it's, and it may not be an ideology, or and it may not uh, have a manifesto. But uh, but there is there is absolutely politics underscoring all of this.
2: What's interesting is that the, the the a lot of the a lot of the kids went for. In, a, in many of the places, the first place they went for were Nando's and Footlocker. Mm-hmm. Now, these are the places that you actually most associate with. Without being well, that being be, this is not being denigrating. I've, I've lived in North London, very part, poor parts of North London for the best part of ten years. So, I'm not being denigrating when I say this, but it was it was Footlocker and it was uh, the KFC and Nando's were supposedly the totems of these communities and these young lads, and they were the first things they smashed up. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting, right? I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have had working class working class groups in the 1830s smash up churches and libraries. Basically, is saying the stake in their communities is complete crap, and they have no respect for it. Which then says, "Well, what parts of their community do they have respect for and want to protect? Absolutely nothing. Hmm. Absolutely nothing." And it's it's nihilism ultimately. Yeah, it's not. It's not like some petty nihilism which is born out of affluenza. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's it's perhaps the other side of that coin. I don't know.
0: And of course, Thatcher died the day before a show. Which of course meant that little sleep and much drink was had. I got up after three hours sleep to speed read her autobiography and by about halfway through the show, basic geography began to elude me. Yeah, uh, so I mean one of the one of the adjectives you probably should have used to describe me this week is also hungover uh, because I was uh, at the very exciting Brixton street party last night to celebrate uh, the finally, finally arriving death of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, a great sort of outpouring uh, of joy, really, actually. And it was really kind of visible, visible joy, uh, and, and uh, transgenerational joy as well. Uh, the memories of, of uh, what Margaret Thatcher did are still present in Brixton, despite its ongoing gentrification. Uh, so it's doubtless unsurprising that the party happened there. She was more possessed of a kind of mythological conviction about the moral worth yep. uh, of of the middle class, and this is, you know, and she writes this again in, in, in the second volume of her memoirs, which is uh, about the period uh, before uh, she, she so her early life and, and her struggle, uh, her kampf if you will, uh, uh, towards the Maggie towards, <laughs> her uh, the, the struggle towards power, and of course she mythologizes Grantham right now. So this is, uh, you know, uh, her her uh, spiritual home. Uh, where her her father uh, was a grocer and, uh, you know, in which she, she, so she says, you know, uh, uh, she writes that before she was aware of any kind of argument about, you know, Keynesianism and all these various things, Uh, she knew instinctively that it was untrue. Uh, but by uh, the understanding gained by simply uh, watching her her much mythologized father, uh, you know, and of course, uh, this is a woman for whom uh, the woman in her life, her mother, uh, was a supplement to and disappeared into the mythology of her father. Um, so, so, this is kind of the spiritual homeland of Thatcherism, uh, uh, Grantham. Uh, Where is Grantham? Somewhere in the East, somewhere in the country, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I I, I always uh, think of it as like, you know, Kendall or somewhere
2: like that. It's got incredibly bourgeois names, but actually in in, in, a bit more, quite working class areas.
0: And then over the years, things got even weirder and less predictable. We spoke a lot, really a lot, about Brexit, including well ahead of time, both identifying before many others did that it was likely to be a very significant campaign and referendum, while others were still treating it as like something that would barely pass attention, much like the AV referendum of a few years before. I even hoped... Wrongly, as it turned out, the left might be able to use it as a kind of lightning conductor for wider social questions.
2: I think Caroline Lucas, up there with the best of them in terms of parliamentarians, she said she wants Britain to stay in the EU. She's saying, I would love to uh, see a massively reformed Europe and Britain staying in. And Europe's only going to change by Britain staying in, and arguing the case for reform. You have to then say in response to that, what reforms? Where's the timetable? How's it going to happen? What's the base of social power behind it? Who's championing? It? What are the demands? Nobody knows. She can't answer any. Karen Lucas cannot answer any of those questions on a single one today. As we'll discuss as the show proceeds, you know, European federalism actually had a big social base mm. and a real intellectual trajectory until the 1970s. You know, people at Altiero Spinelli coming out of the Communist Party, uh, partisans, uh, you know, anti you know, sort of fascists, communists but who then understood the limits of state socialism, the limits of Stalinism, that didn't mean they went to libertarian communism. That meant they then became Eurofederalists. In a weird way, that still defines the thinking of much of the centre-left in Europe today. In 1970, the debate
0: about Europe was used to sublate... Uh, Emerging social conflicts. Mm. Um, It was used in a way that that the nation is often used, and national economic policy and ideas about the direction of a state among states are are often used, um, you know, as a sort of box of tricks that can uh, that can transform. Uh, you know, these questions uh, and remove them to a kind of more ethereal, abstract or purely discursive plane. It was very much used as a lightning conductor in that sense. But what the Edwardian example tells us is that this this needn't necessarily be the case. And my suspicion is that if uh, those of us uh, on the left are Uh, a little more cunning about this than people were in the 70s, if we sort of refuse uh, to be uh, corralled into broadsheets or merely into organs of opinion um, or or refuse the terms uh, of the debate in the sense that uh, we would refuse to have it purely discursive and actually realise that it's something that must uh, animate the whole of society, then the question of Europe can become a a real lightning conductor for all social struggles at the moment Mm. because, you know, it's unquestionable that people are looking at the treatment of Greece and thinking, what is this institution? What is happening here? What what is it for? What is it designed for? Uh, Are the things that I thought 20 years ago when uh, you know, when there was a, a reactionary political party attacking Europe and, de- and desiring our exit, well, I perhaps defended it because uh, I felt that, say, the Conservative Party are necessarily reactionary. But actually, what is this institution that we're part of? How far does national sovereignty extend? Mm. Uh, how can I conduct myself in a Europe where I have no say mm. over the way in which my life is governed and organised? So, so these questions can become really active and can become a really, really impo- important part of social contestation. But we've never just been about events, ideas, history, thinking, argument, all these have always been profound parts of the show, or, well, almost always. One of the things that's very interesting about reading the whole corpus of Marx's work in particular... Oh, you show off. (laughs) The whole corpus of Marx's work. I I haven't, I haven't, you know, sat... Michael
5: does all his learning on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Um, That's, I mean, it's very modern. Um, you know, I mean, no, one of the things I Wikipedia, think, to be I've honest. Become... Sometimes we've tried to stage those conversations ourselves and there's a lot in the archive which is basically us turning over an idea, trying to relate it to today, arguing, thinking, working together. But we've also had a lot of help and it's included grappling with the history of the left itself. Here's China Mievel on the Russian Revolution and its legacy.
4: On one level, it is, as you say, the the simple fact that, you know, revolutions can happen. But if I would go a bit further and say, you know, revolutions against capital, against capitalism, against imperialism can happen and are sustained and driven forward by, you know, a glimmer, but a but a visible glimmer of a sense of mm-hmm. absolutely radical renewal, not not yeah. just a kind of tinkering, yeah. but, you know, a fundamentally different system. So there's that. But allied to that, for me, is a move away from precisely the inevitability you're talking about. To say not only was it this kind of you know beautiful utopian vision, because that can be expressed in a very counter revolutionary mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Ah, such a tragedy yes, that revolutions yes, yes, always yes, fail, yes. you know. Um, but but precisely, I think this is where a concrete analysis does come in because. All of that that sense of the kind of epochal glimmer and, and how moving that is, is as nothing if you sort of think it was doomed. Mm-hmm. So allied to that for me is a sense that embattled, you know, uh, denigrated, attacked, yes. But doomed, no. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think you have to yeah. be able to make that case to actually draw a concrete inspiration from it. Having come out of... Uh, a tradition for me, that for many years was extremely moralistic about lack of lack of hope or lack of, um, not just lack of hope, but lack of sort of rah-rah optimism mm. and that sort of excoriated that as being um, in some way, you know, objectively counter-revolutionary and liable to, you know, lead to, you know, the cardinals in demoralisation. Um, and what I discovered when I essentially was kind of freed with my fellow salvage editors... To, to kind of explore the scale of what seems to me the, the problem is affecting us, to not be moralised against for feeling pessimistic, far from being demoralised, I feel more politically motivated than I have mm. for many, many years, well over a decade. So simply as an equation, pessimism equals inactivity, I think this is fallacious nonsense mm-hmm. and based on moralism and so on. And I think obviously on one level there is a kind of utopian hope to any radical project there has to be because if you genuinely think there's no point doing anything if that is then then there's no point doing anything but i think that prioritizing that over a kind of um hard-headed pessimism if the times demand it and that's Mm. That's the corollary there, like pessimism is not or should not be a a point of principle. It's a question of, it's a question of a result of an analysis of a concrete situation. So it's not that, you know, it's not that, you know, I I like to wake up in the morning and say right now to be pessimistic about whatever comes my past, it comes past my door. It's about saying, looking at the world at the moment you know, I I love being surprised by joy, to quote Lewis, you know, I love that, you know, I I was delighted by Corbyn, and I'm very excited by that, and so on. So this is not about a kind of Eeyore-ish wallowing in gloom. What it's about saying is trying to be concrete about the everyday. And this comes into what you're talking about, the stuff I've been trying to do about social sadism. I don't think history is, you know, I don't think we just kind of keep on going through a thing called capitalism. I think it gets better, and it gets worse. And it gets worse. And I think that we are in, you know, a historically particularly curdled and poisonous moment, and have been sort of certainly, since you know, been moving that way since the 70s. Um, And I think that there is a new iteration of a kind of overt sadism of of, of kind of ruling class power that I don't think was there in the 50s, not in the same way, I don't think was there in the 60s, even in the early 70s. And I think that, you know, I think we would be kidding ourselves if we did not face up to that and to what that does to general consciousness and so on. This is where it kind of allies to the activism. For me, part of the point about pessimism, uh, being pessimistic, I should say, is the yearning to prove that pessimism
6: wrong. Because they all walk around, all these Trotsky's blokes, she said, they all walk around as if they were in possession of the truth and that's why they're in politics.
0: And Jacqueline Rose joined us to talk about feminism, about women in dark times and what a renewed feminist politics might look like.
6: Women go into feminism largely because their lives have become impossible, their home life has fallen apart, they're suffering from depression. We should say that feminism, I would say, has always been in touch with the nonsense of a certain kind of political rhetoric which is to say, no, think that, again with one, no, things are not perfect. You ask me to be perfect for you. That's the worst form of chauvinism. <laughs> so, sexuality, as far as I can say, is always trouble. Everybody I write about in this book knows that sexuality is big trouble. And the way I sum it up is that I think we're in danger of exchanging an injustice for an illusion, which is to say, because we fought against sexual inequality and we've won some of those battles. We're then in danger of promoting exactly this kind of sanitized, upbeat, everything in the garden is lovely, which, of course, is the worst dominant ideology of the culture, even if it takes, you know, gay form or queer form. You know, everybody's going to be married and, you know, we're going to have these unions and, you know, all these gay and revolutionary people are going to start behaving like the bourgeois family. I know this is very controversial, what I'm saying. And, of course, I support the legislation. 100%. But what I don't like is the image that is being promoted alongside it, which is that what we all should be is happy couples who last a lifetime and are willing to stage a public commitment about how happy and perfect everything is. Because nothing is. You know, that, that's where the trouble is. And I want a politics, a feminist politics that says, look at this, please. No lies. Let feminism then be the place in our culture which asks everyone, women and men, to recognise the failure of the present dispensation, its stiff-back control, its ruthless belief in its own mastery, its doomed attempt to bring the uncertainty of the world to heal. Let feminism be the place where the most painful aspects of our inner world do not have to hide from the light, but are ushered forth as handmaidens to our protest. The feminism I am calling for would have the courage of its contradictions – It would assert the rights of women boldly and brashly, but without turning its own conviction into a false identity or ethic. It would make its demands with a clarity that brooks no argument, but without being seduced by its own rhetoric. The last thing it would do is claim sexuality as prized possession or commodity. This is a feminism aware that it moves, that it has to move through the sexual undercurrents of our lives, where all uncertainties come to grief. Otherwise, it too will find itself lashing out against the unpredictability of the world, party to its cruelties and false promises. Such a feminism would accept what it is to falter and suffer inwardly while still laying out, without hesitation, its charge sheet of injustice. This might just, I allow myself to think, be an immense relief for many of both sexes. It is, for me, what feminism uniquely has to bring to the increasingly dark times we live in. And we got
0: more and more intellectually adventurous as we realised that there was both audience and scope for fresh thinking, stories and work outside the narrowly political. And one of the conversations which made me realise just how much scope there was for ideas-based shows like this was this. Uh, Here's Matthew Beaumont talking about William Blake's involvement in the Gordon riots as they approached Newgate Prison, which was, of course, torn down.
7: He loathed what the historian Peter Leinbau has called the thanatocracy of the of the eighteenth century. This was the era in which property laws were brought in and enshrined as they never had done before and, and people were criminalised and punished in really quite extreme ways by hanging for example on a large scale for even the most minor infringements of property. So capitalism was really shoring up its its foundations and and, and policing itself extremely aggressively in this period and Blake recoiled from that. He recoiled from the whole culture of Tiber and the whole culture of discipline and punishment in in the late 18th century. And his poetry, the prophetic books, I think are absolutely full of images, well, of, of burning prisons, of flaming riots, but also of, a, of the horror of the darkness and barbarism of this supposedly Enlightenment culture, Enlightenment civilization in England and London in, in the 18th century. Also the possibility almost homeopathically of using the night as a way of dispelling what in the book, I suppose echoing Georges Bataille, I call the Black Sun of Enlightenment, this great pull that the Enlightenment, despite its claim to be illuminating, is, you know, imposes on on the city. So he sees darkness, I think, both as a corrupt product of the Enlightenment and perhaps as a means of of evading the surveillance and the transparency of, of the Enlightenment and of, and of light. But you know, we haven't been shy about pushing ideas into new
0: territory either. One of the knots at which we often worried was exactly how technology, production and capitalism all interact, or in other words, the years-long arguments about what came to be known as Falk. there is a technological question which occupies or preoccupies political thinkers at the moment rise of the robots artificial intelligence dystopia or utopia <clears throat> and one day we'll be able to edit my uh, cough inclined strep throat uh. yeah there is actually i think <laughs> that
2: there is talk of that
0: yeah well I'll cure the common cold and then i'll start believing in <laughs> the powers of technology Here's me just drawing a little parallel between historical utopians, also one of our recurrent themes, and today's technologists drawing on the vision of technology in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. But they they have this marvellous phrase where where, um, they say they trade not in gold, but light, i.e. knowledge. And that is, I mean, it's a really poignant moment um, and it's a really kind of formative moment for the way in which people start to think about the relationship between technology and the state. For me, Bacon is kind of equivalent in some ways to modern-day falcons, the fully automated luxury communists, of which I am not one, but count many of my, many of them as my friends. Some <laughs> um, of
5: my best friends are falcons. So
2: <laughs> For me, when I say fully automated luxury communism, the vision is William Morris, news from nowhere. It's playing in nature. It's uh, actually a very antique idea of, of flourishing in togetherness. The point is, what makes that abundance possible? What would ward off cancer? Well, it probably is gene editing. Mm-hmm. What would allow us to not require the hydrocarbons? Well, it's probably going to be PV cells. Because we li- live under capitalism, the attention is focused on these. Now, these are merely a means to an end. What is the end? Marx says it. It's the flourishing of human species being, which is nothing to do with robots and transistors and all this stuff.
5: That we're in danger of losing the fun. One of my favourite things about fully automated luxury communism is that there's there's this inherent camp and like glamour and glitz to it, which I think is incredibly attractive, and you can't lose sight of that. I think that one of the things that's um, useful to think about, not just fun to think about, but useful to think about, is to think about the way in which ideas of luxury and opulence have been deployed to have quite subversive effects. One of the things I've been thinking about is Paris is Burning, especially opulence, you (laughs) own everything. Everything is yours. Um, Through these performances of wealth, glamour, high fashion, it's highlighting not just the um, abjectness of what it meant to be black and queer in 1980s early 1990s new york because people were having a real crappy time of it let's be honest but also the joy the ebullience the sexy subversion inherent in all these things and i think it's important not to not to lose sight of that um the thing that i'm positing is that there's an inherent queerness to fully automated luxury communism which is enjoyable for those of us who are too camp for normal communism
0: So you talk about the iPad camera being more powerful. I, you know, I, I'm trying to think about why is this stuff leaves me fundamentally cold. Mm. I, I, I mean, I suppose I just find technology in and of itself quite difficult to get excited about, and in part that's that's because historical awareness that the emancipatory potential of technology is is rarely realised, and certainly not immediately realised and that relations of domination, historical relations of domination tend to persist and in fact are often even renewed by uh, new forms of Mm. technology. So historically I mean my sympathies lie with the kind of invisible army of Ned Ludd rather than the inventors of the spinning jenny. So why should I care Mm. about technology?
2: Well we have to care about technology. You said, for instance, cameras. I mean, this is a great example. Who cares if the iPad camera is, you know, five times more powerful than its predecessor? The point is that this will feed into autonomous vehicles. My father's a taxi driver. Improvements in that technology will very likely mean that that profession is a thing of the past in 20 years time. So it allows us not to prophesy the future because that's the job of, you know, capitalist futurism. uh, Something like a Ray Kurzweil. But it should inform how we act in the present and seek to rechannel those directions, like you say, in socially advantageous ways to the working class.
0: My second problem here is: you know, aren't our feelings of enjoyment to some extent conditioned yeah. by, you know, capitalist logic, logic of scarcity, exclusivity, competitive degradation, nihilism, and so on? But more importantly, and I think more more fundamentally, isn't a future that is in any way sustainable? Uh, doesn't that require us to transform quite profoundly our relationship to natural resources? Mm. But also the circulation of consumer commodities on which a lot of contemporary enjoyment mm. is 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 currently predicated. It's just unimaginable in the long term. Well, we don't know. I mean, uh, that's for the future to decide. I know but hold on, a- you talk about the future all the time, and now you say, oh, well, we
2: don't know. No, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, my response to be a... a
0: But it wasn't just about ideas. We wrestled extensively with what it would mean for the left to win, what the relationship to the state is or ought to be, and what power might actually look like. And then suddenly, that question became very, very
8: pressing indeed. There's a a lovely part in this interview that Gilles Deleuze does. It's that videoed interview that Abbe you know, like, so the interviewer gives him a little, for each letter, she gives him a concept and then he's supposed to say something about it it's fantastic anyway they get to G and she says gauche you know for left and his first response is um, il n'y a pas de gouvernement de gauche like there's no such thing as a leftist government mm-hmm. what there is he goes on to say is a government that can give space to the left like I love that idea mm. that seems to me what actually is in practice in various degrees with various problems in certain governments today. For instance, in the municipal government in Barcelona, you know, which comes to power on the backs of the movements, like many others, but, but in some ways, and to a certain measure, you could say at a local, at a municipal level, it is about, you know, through an electoral project of taking power. But really what it's trying to do is give space to the movements.
9: It's second nature to them. Corbyn, by definition, can't work.
2: This week we'll be discussing Jeremy Corbyn. J. Corb from the block, used to have a little, now he's got a lot. Uh, And we're asking why after five years, well he has got other guys, you know, he's at the top of his game right now, right? 66 years old, bless him. Yes, Corbynism.
0: It would be impossible to condense five years of grappling with exactly what happens when you try to take power in this country from the left, and God knows our judgements on the situation changed a lot. Our discussions on the FM have always been quite sober and sanguine on Corbynism, even at its most euphoric, and even when we could feel it spiralling apart. But listening back, it's the earliest shows which I think are the most interesting, including, as you heard there, James Schneider prior to his days working in Corbyn's office, back when he was just founding Momentum.
9: You know, there's a set of rules in politics, it's very, very simple. Um, uh, you can't win from the left. The the British people are basically quite right wing, quite small C conservative. Uh, the only way you win is with some kind of um, pizzazz and presidentialism, and, and uh, somehow. And also, we need to have think tanks as well. That's just, that's their sort of basic framework. And all of those things are completely untrue. The idea that the Labour Party, because suddenly Jeremy Corbyn wins with this massive mandate, completely transforms into being this movement party with a million members at the heart of every community, organising tenants unions and organising um, people on zero-hours contracts and doing all of these things that we probably think that it, not only in order to win, but in order to win and then transform society are necessary. It doesn't just do overnight, right? The party doesn't it, it can't transform. We've changed the leadership of the party. A lot of its culture and practices remain in that same form, what people are used to, used to from being a party over, well, you know, mainly concerned with, and not that this is a bad thing, but we're asking for it to be concerned with electoral politics and with movement building and seeing those two things as having some kind of a relationship. Um, it's way too early to say whether it's impossible for that to happen. Clearly, things are changing. I mean, the Labour Party is much more open to movements than it was beforehand. It is a bit more like a movement than it was beforehand, but is it a movement party? No, it's not a movement party. But I I think we've got to look at the the kind of dynamics that play within it, and if we're interested in the kind of movement party bit of it, how those can be strengthened. I assume that the reason why we're excited about half a million people volunteering for something, for a political project termed a political revolution, the, why, the, the reason why we're excited about um, uh, popularly funded politics and all the rest of it isn't really because you can get a left candidate to win an election. Mm you know, that alone doesn't really transform society, is that you can have a movement that can build your social block, build your social base, organize people, so that you can actually enforce the agenda that you get elected on, and therefore be transformative. I mean, Bernie Sanders without a movement, if he becomes the president, what's he going to do? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is nothing that he can do without building a movement, which is the, the failure, as we obviously can see of the Obama thing, building up that amazing movement in 2008 in order to get elected and then letting it basically demobilize.
2: <laughs> I mean, there's a bit. There's a bit.
0: And one of the most interesting of those early shows, Rosie Warren and Richard Seymour from Salvage Magazine, on how to judge Corbynism's potential.
10: Is it a flash in the pan? No, I don't think it is. I think it's structural. Now, Corbynism itself is incredibly fragile. I mean, everybody can see this. And I did a meeting the other night talking to Labour activists, and uh, nobody's in any doubt about this, that it's at great risk of falling apart sooner rather than later. And at least by 2020, uh, if uh, Corbyn is unable to win the election by some uh, strange set of circumstances. But nonetheless, it remains a structural phenomenon. Why? Because the conditions that made such a rapid surge possible are gonna continue. The decline in voting, the decline in party identification, the decline in party membership. These are all the factors that have been present uh, in British politics for a long time, but they've reached a tipping point. And we already saw that in Scotland, of course, with the devastation of uh, really the heartline of the old Labour right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they were not able to defeat Corbyn. Pasoakification is, as it's called, is working its way mercilessly at the base of the Labour Party. And Corbyn has been elected to address that problem from the left. The crisis of the Labour Party gave him the position that he's got. It may now be his biggest impediment.
11: Obviously this is something that we've had to discuss relentlessly since declaring ourselves for pessimism um, because that has been largely misread as being for cynicism, which is of course not the same thing. But the thing about pessimism and the kind of pessimism that we're trying to kind of promote or at least argue for is that it's not about there being no moments of, of joy or moments of success. It's precisely that you can then recognize them as actual moments of success rather than as something that you had predicted from the very beginning because you had this kind of triumphalist Nostrum of, you know, as always being on the up, everything being right around the corner, that if you're, if you're ready for failure and then something good happens, you can really seize on that and, you know, work out how you did that and repeat it. If you go into every situation assuming that you're gonna win, you disorientate every activist who believed you and, you know, and who was hoping for a success when you don't, and you have no explanation for it because, you've, you know, you've completely set yourselves up for failure. I don't know that this is a moment for optimism in that sense. But certainly, Corbynism and Sandersism and Podemos and you know, where these mm. things are happening elsewhere, they're certainly chinks of a good occurrence, if <laughs> you like. Um, but I don't think we're under any illusions about what chances they have for you know, real and lasting success if we approach them as if they're you know, inevitable. This is what we yeah. are waiting for and everything's gonna be plain sailing from here. <laughs> In terms of the kind of role that the youth, the spectre of the youth have played in the whole thing, pre-2010, pre-the student movement, um, pre-Occupy, there was this, you know, particularly on the right, but, you know, I think it made its way into, certainly, the Labour left. There was this, um, you know, this spectre of this, like, apolitical, apathetic youth that, you know, no longer cared about politics because they were consumerist and, you know, they'd bought the lie and, you know, we couldn't appeal to them anymore. (laughs) And then the student movement happens and, obviously, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of students that are furious and it should have put it to rest and instead this new spectre has come up of this millennial who is this naive, you know, idealistic dreamer, particularly in the US but I think within, you know, the Corbynistas are being accused of this as well. So the the kind of turn on a dime of the youths being kind of demonised as these apathetic letdowns who, Mm. you know, don't appreciate their vote and aren't turning out for elections because they, you know, they don't know they were born and mythical privileged young people who are actually have the worst, you know, the mm. first time having worse living standards than their parents, them being turned into these idealistic, you know, naive dreamers. And they've obviously become Corbyn's core, you know, the, these people flooded into the Labour Party. The more people join the Labour Party in, I think, immediately after Corbyn's election and in the run-up to it, than are in the Conservative Party in total, no. which, yes. mm-hmm. you know, is worth remembering. When Corbyn was elected, there was this vitriol against them that, you know, you're ruining our party, you're, you know, you're coming in and you're, you know, you don't understand, Let the, leave the adults to it. We, we knew what we were doing, you know, we we had, we had Miliband and he was, he had his stone and we were all, <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd worked it out and now you're coming in and you're wrecking it and you're ruining it and we're never going to le- get elected on this basis. Mm-hmm. And so you've suddenly gone from, you know, asking, Young people to come out to suddenly blaming them for their own interest in politics. Yes. And the other thing to go back to is this thing we were saying about personalities. I don't think it was just an anti-politics, anti-representation, or that there was no difference between the parties, but there was no p- difference between the people. They were all they were all the same Blairites mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and then Corbyn comes along, and the thing that everybody says about him is he's, you know, he's this really genuine, really straightforward. You know, you know what you're getting with Corbin and he's a really nice guy.
0: Yeah. No matter- like almost alarmingly so, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, I kind of yeah, I kind of want is, there to be some vice. Actually. Yeah. This is, this is this is one of the things that we've
11: said, you know, that his his politics of kindness, you know, is is useful in a particular way in countering the kind of social sadism that has become so yeah. rampant, but it's also limiting in that he can't go on the attack.
0: But throughout, we've also tried to decenter criminology and gossip. We've tried to treat political issues as matters of significance which don't depend on whether they're convenient for your chosen party. And that's especially true for two issues which I think are going to define politics for the rest of this century. The first is migration, and everything that the question of migration tells us about politics in a wider sense.
12: Until this point, the logic has been that politicians of the the Liberal Centre have said we need to do this in order to quell the anxieties of a certain part of our voter base, um, to stop there being this populist right-wing backlash, to stop far-right politicians taking power. What we're seeing now is that politicians, either with far-right sympathies or from far-right political movements, are taking power in some forms in some Mm -hmm. countries. And what they're doing, although they're using the same tools and the same machinery as as perhaps their predecessors, whereas the logic before was this idea that we we need to control migration to stop a kind of backlash, what, say, Salvini in Italy has been doing with refusing the Aquarius Mm. rescue ship to dock at Italian ports, or what Trump has done with separating migrant children from their parents um, who've crossed from the border with Mexico, is to actually stoke and inflame the sense of crisis. Ironically, actually, at a point where these things are at their lowest for mm-hmm. for a few years, so so sea crossings from Libya to to Italy are at their lowest since before the the, the refugee crisis mm-hmm. began, for example. But mm-hmm. what Salvini is interested in, in, and what Trump is interested in, is creating this sense of existential threat to European identity in order to push this idea that the nation comes above all, the you know national sovereignty, the nation state is where it's at, and, and to convince their own citizens to give them more and more powers, which has implications beyond the rights right of migrants mm-hmm. as well, I think.
13: When we say, well, the state says, be tough or, or immigration policies, say, be tough on borders or deport now, I think we should say that that reflects a loss of control on the state Mm -hmm. and that is being projected into migrants as a way of making up for the fact Mm -hmm. that precisely the state has lost control. We've lost control on the streets. We've lost control on the ability to provide Mm -hmm. basic goods to citizens. So we think about things like police funding Mm -hmm. cuts and Mm -hmm. how that makes the streets unsafe. And therefore, all this structural Features go into second place, and then what's brought out is the migrant as mm-hmm. the culprit of mm-hmm. responsibility for all yeah. of this. And so mm-hmm. it's a way of making up for, I think, the narrative of having more control over migration is the other face of losing control right. within yeah. the state with one's own citizens and in failing to kind of deliver on the democratic promise that one makes to one's own citizens. Well, I think borders um, are, they're kind of restrictions on your citizenships, and I don't think um, the idea of borders applies just to migrants so for example some people would look at how punitive the benefit system is in the UK and say that's a form of borders mm-hmm. like it's this is a very similar system to the way migrants are policed the way that people who need access to welfare benefits are policed there are certain hoops they have to jump through if they want to get support so I think a border is it is not necessarily just physically entering a country it's what happens to you when you get mm-hmm. to the country whether you have access to decent housing and um, whether you have access to work whether your children have to live in poverty or not and the state just has so much power and control over what you do you never feel completely secure or safe. Mm-hmm.
12: I would add to that that you know there are the borders that the state tries to impose in order to regulate people, you know, control them, keep people in particular places or restrict access to, you know, certain social goods or, or benefits. And then there's the kind of borders that we we have in our heads as well that often stem from that, that um, there will also be a knock-on effect of um, us making divisions between people. So the the big one in my work is this division between genuine refugee and other, you know, economic migrants one of the things that I'm hoping to challenge with the way that I'm writing about people is to show how that distinction breaks down in real Mm -hmm. life, because I think we can very easily kind of unconsciously replicate those decisions. And I mean, that's also, you know, in a way, that's the sort of ideological bordering, you know, whether it's racism or class, and and the way that we think about those people. That's a persistent feature of our societies. And and it's a way that keeps capitalism functioning Mm -hmm. and keeps us, you know, a small group of people having all the wealth and the power as well.
13: One of the problems around the the borders open or closed debate, as it's presented often in mainstream academic but also political literature or more mainstream media is precisely that this sort of loses sight of the internal differentiations within the citizenry and within migration population. And so when we're thinking about are we in favor or against open borders, we somehow forget that borders are always open for some people and closed for other people. So they're more open and more Mm closed. They're more open if you're white, middle class, educated, even if you come from (laughs) Albania like me. And they are much less open if you are of a different race, of a different uh, working class position, for example. And so, I think one of the problems with the open borders debate and also of migration in general being discussed as migration rather than what kind of migration under what constraints and in what country and in what period even is precisely that we lose sight of the fact that a migrant may or may not be a target depending on what kind of migrant they are. I mean, Mm. football managers and football players and actresses and Olympic athletes are all migrants, but Mm. they're extremely privileged migrants. They're unlikely to go through any of the burdens of admission and integration that the kinds of migrants that we worry about when we think about the burdens of migration uh, are. So um, there's anecdotal example, when I applied for permanent leave to remain, I discovered that for a super premium visa fee, you could have home office official come to your home and collect your fingerprints and process the whole application within 24 hours. So it's, there's still a border, yeah. there's still a constraint, but think about that constraint against someone who instead doesn't even have the means to mm. access the application procedure or has problems navigating the internet yeah. or has problems with uh, operating, uh, discussing with officials on the phone or... There's a number of barriers on communication and integration that are just faced in an unequal way. And I mm. think the kind of the general the catch-all phrase migrant doesn't necessarily allow you to capture these different elements.
0: You heard Dan Trilling, Rebecca O'Manira and Leia Upi there. Now the great emergency of our time, the thing which also makes migration a central question is climate change. And in a sense, it's a kind of deep and peculiar human madness that finds us devoting such energy to petty squabbles like infinitesimal differences on the left or rabid digital persecution of the most mild of deviations in the face of so profound an existential crisis. We've devoted lots of time to it over the years, and believe me, we'll be devoting more. Here's Jeff Mann.
14: The political-economic responses are entirely dependent upon a functioning capitalist system and the attendant uh, attachments to growth, attachments to distributive networks that are in no way addressing the issues of social and other kinds of justice. It, at the very best, will lock in existing inequalities and at worst, and even more likely, exacerbate those that exist, both between and across nations. We're at a point now where even the Financial Times is daily publishing articles. Today, there was one from someone from an island nation saying, you know, the UNFCC negotiations are uh, basically leaving us to drown. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, without in in any way, you know, saying that Joel and I have some sort of particularly wise insight into that, but that fits perfectly in the story we're telling. And I think it's absolutely Mm -hmm. predictable. And I actually don't think it's going to change. And unfortunately, I think at the rate that things are moving, those countries will be underwater before other alternatives emerge in a
15: way that they're born. Capitalism has this really important binary of society and nature. Both of these terms get produced, uh, you know, sort of through the long sixteenth century, and the idea behind it is, is essentially to say that that here uh, within society, uh, and that's usually white men, um, and uh, obviously propertyed white men, um, certainly not the working class were invited to be part of society at that point. Um, but society is uh, where it is that that knowledge is found and centralised, uh, and beyond it are savages. I mean, literally, you know, the, the idea of beyond the pale uh, is, you know, the, the pale being this very physical boundary in in, uh, England's first colony in in, in Ireland. And beyond the pale were the savages. Once you set up this boundary and police the boundary of of society and nature, you get to kick people into the the, the world of of savagery, Um, whether it's the Irish or whether it's indigenous people, whether people of colour, or whether it's women's natural inclinations towards reproductive labour that then can be taken for free. Uh, All of this is a a sort of sign of how it is that the the society-nature divide persists, um, where, you know, when we think of nature... Even today, uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm sort of I'm, I'm I'm looking at you, sort of right wing environmentalists. Uh, the, the, you know, the the idea of nature is it, nature is what you go for a walk in. Uh, you know, you, you you pop out there for a, for a weekend uh, in you know in your Land Rover, and that forgets that in fact capitalism is a way of organising nature uh, and wh- a way of organising how it is that humans uh, engage with and think about and permit themselves to appropriate and discard uh, the rest of the web of life.
14: It does seem like the best option right now. I understand that. And I tell everyone who asks me about this, if they made it happen and and if I can help make it happen, I'm in. He's talking here about the Green New Deal. That said, I think it's very important for those of us who are endorsing it to also be realistic about what it can possibly achieve. Its attachment to a Keynesian economics means that it does, I think, render itself subject to some of the flaws that we identify in Climate Leviathan and some of the larger kind of ideological complications or paradoxes that tie it to Keynesians more generally, which I talk about in the other book more. You know, that is, as you mentioned, that's a naivety about global finance, which doesn't mean that can't be overcome, but it, it won't be easy. And it's not in the Green New Deal right now. Um, It also relies on a kind of set of funding mechanisms that, unless something else changes, will be tied directly to the wealth and welfare of global finance. There's also the sort of simple reliance on a capitalist growth pattern. In the American version, there's also a considerably, naive would be the kind way of putting it, but to some extent, there's a bit of an arrogant imperialist tone to it. The idea is that the United States will do this and it will be a lesson for the rest of the world. Uh, Again, I sound like I'm raining on a parade that I want to be part of, but I guess I am a little bit. The other concern is that insofar as the American economy right now is crucial, not just to Americans, but to the world, the rest of the world is is bound to be shaken by the radical transformation of the world's biggest shopper. And that alone is something to think about. That's not to say we shouldn't do this. Radical transformation is clearly necessary, but it needs to be, if not singular, it needs to be a multilateral discussion.
15: The chicken nugget works as the the sort of embodiment of everything that's bad about capitalism. First of all, if you want a a sort of signature of humanity's uh, being on Earth, you can look to the fossil record and find uh, the trillions of chicken bones that are laid down because uh, humans have decided that chicken is soon to be the world's most popular flesh for human consumption. And that has happened uh, through, uh, first of all, the the first cheap thing is cheap nature, uh, an idea that you can go into the jungles of uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia um, take this bird, this this red jungle fowl and transform it into something that's unrecognisable. 50% of its genetic diversity uh, is lost in the modern broiler chicken which has now been engineered into a beast that's so large uh, and its its breasts are so large that it can't walk Um, and that idea that uh, nature is the the sort of thing that we can uh, both take take and use as we wish and discard as we wish that's the sort of cardinal sin of, of modern capitalism. Um, but the chickens don't turn themselves into nuggets. You need workers. And in the, the modern chicken industry, uh, workers are treated incredibly badly. Uh, recently, we were just doing some uh, sort of follow up research. And we found out that, uh, you know, it, if you spend a dollar on chicken in, in America, um, two cents of it goes to workers. But in some cases, uh, prison labor is used in uh, in the chicken production line. So people get paid maybe 25 cents an hour. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the people are treated So badly in the chicken industry that there's usually a dearth of workers in the night shift. Uh, And so chicken industry executives came up with a fantastic plan to be able to solve that, which is uh, to set up Christian opioid rehabilitation clinics. Um, And so the idea is that instead of being incarcerated, people can be diverted away from uh, the the prison population into these rehabilitation centers. In these rehabilitation centers, uh, if you're suffering from opioid addiction, you'll spend a large part of the day in prayer. And at night you will work and uh, your work on the chicken production line is unpaid, but it's part of your treatment. And this is, of course, very new and very old, you know, the idea that uh, with sufficient work and labour and prayer and obeisance to Christ, you might be able to join society. Um, that's the, the, the sort of 101 uh, move that the Spanish colonialists used uh, against indigenous people, and it's being used again today, that, that uh, people who are in the throes of opioid addiction are being uh, treated literally as outcasts from society, and their permission to rejoin society is free labour.
0: And Raj Patel there neatly demonstrating how the basic politics of human reproduction technology in its simplest sense and the profound ability of humanity to alter its environment, all these are at play right now in the question of climate change. All right, the clock runs low and we've been on a whistle-stop tour of the Navarra FM catalogue. Maybe you've heard some things you missed at the time can, of course, check them out on the Navarra Media website. And there are a great number of things that we found we've had to leave out, simply because they're intense, deep discussions which don't necessarily lend themselves well to being clipped. But that's especially true when we're thinking in depth about the state or about what revolution might actually mean, what it means to talk about the people. One strand I hope we'll talk about more, uh, but which is like a golden thread running through the show, is an interest in utopia, a conviction that actually it is still necessary to make a claim, a positive claim on the future, and that that is not only a question of policy, but imagination and inspiration as well. It would be, I think, difficult to condense the lessons we've learned over the decade, but let's put it like this I'm entering the next decade with a triad of rules drawn from the last. The first is that much, much more is at stake. Much, much more is contested. Much, much more is shiftable than you might think. Because of this, deeply unexpected transformations will happen and you won't always see them coming. Who saw the precise shape that Trump or Corbyn or even Brexit would take? And so neither the stance of the optimist or the pessimist is useful. The optimist thinks that their involvement is entirely unnecessary that history is going to move on uh, and transform without them. The pessimist thinks that nothing can move history anyway, so why bother? The task though is sober assessment and persistence in insisting that things can and must change. Second rule. The weakest parts of our own work have always been where we've tried to close off a difficulty or prematurely resolve a contradiction, either by making it accord too readily with left wing orthodoxy or for fear of what it might represent. But this is always a mistake. The most important and powerful lesson comes from the heart of difficulty, it comes from the heart of these really difficult issues. You need to stay with the trouble and just think about the difficulty. Don't seek easy answers. Third rule, confidence. One common trouble for the left is that it has shaken confidence. We have many failures to reckon with, God knows. But analytically, the left gets more things right than it does wrong. The left is right about capitalism. The left is right about the state, force and violence. The left is right about racism. It's right about prejudice. It's right in its vision of free human beings living in freedom. The past decade has proven us right about a decaying capitalism providing no solution to its own problems, unable to resolve endogenously its own instability or return to its glory years. It has proven us right about the return of nationalist populism. It has proven us right, above all, about capitalism's total incapacity to deal with the planet-wide ecological crisis. We could go on and on. But these are the foundations, and they are rock solid. Work from there. Last word to Kristen Ross quoting an analogy made by Elisere Clou, a geographer who was part of the Paris Commune.
6: The stream, in his view, was superior to the river because of the unpredictability of its course. The river's torrents of water barrow down, a deep furrow pre-carved by the thousands of gallons that have preceded it. The stream, on the other hand, makes its own way. But for that very reason, the relative strength of the waters of any mountain brook is proportionately greater than that of the Amazon.
0: I would repurpose this analogy for 2021. Yes, I think we should think of mountain streams wearing new paths down the mountain, their extraordinary power in charting those new courses. But we run, each of us, to one plane. In our thousand individual water courses, we wear down new stone until one course merges into another stream becomes brook becomes tributary becomes river until we roar down with a strength an unstoppable strength like great water has with its roots in all those thousand thousand tiny streams god knows we're going to need that strength this is Navarre fm this is Resonance 104.4 fm it is 2021 i'll see you next week
2: That may sound incredibly boring. It quite possibly is. Before we continue, can
0: I (laughs) just give a big shout out? (laughs) I I have to say, I I always hate talking about the Labour Party. sort of exercising misery and despair Um, despite the fact that you know I I don't actually expect much from the Labour Party it's not as if I'm in a state of permanent disappointment with them I I sort of expect them to be the Labour Party and sure enough they fulfill that expectation month after month year after year decade after decade. It's very strange to to kind of you know, talk about automation or robots or whatever. <laughs> you know, because it can sometimes sound like you're talking in some sort of Matrix slash Terminator fantasy sci-fi land, which is not my milieu, I have to admit. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, oddly, no. Um, Let's not go there. Uh, by the way, Paul Mason, I've asked this guy Slight deviation, but, you know, we're talking about call. We're talking about left ideas, talking about the 21st century. We're talking about defining the political future in this country. Paul Mason wants to be a big shot in that game, right? He's got a great big book out with Penguin, post-capitalism. Paul, where are you? Answer my emails. Answer <laughs> my calls. Every time I tweet this guy, I say, Paul, when are you coming on? He goes, oh, 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 you know, you, you tell me and I'll come on. You just need to tell me and I'll come on, you know. I'll come back after the Greece election. Which one, Paul? You know, anyway.
0: Isn't that a necessary question to
4: engage with? You can't have done with the political or the autonomy of the political. Sorry, I've gone on a bit there.
8: No, no, that, that was good. Um...
0: this broadcast and the last 10 years of broadcast were brought to you by navara media go to navara.media/support